We are starting late today because we have a lot of extra bells and whistles. We're trying to, uh, trying to do some things. There's probably two people watching. Hello, Will. Hello, Sarah. Good to see you guys at home. Um, we're starting late today, but I do want to jump into our Sunday school hour. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll look at the book of Revelation and conclude our series through the books of the Bible. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the opportunity and the privilege of being here today. I thank you for this unique moment in time and the opportunity that it presents the church. We ask, Lord, that as we um, deal with all of the noise, all of the distractions, the concerns of this week, real concerns, uh, that we would be able to take these few moments to fix our eyes on you. I pray that you'd quiet our hearts and our minds, help us to be still, and to give our attention fully to you and to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for the book of Revelation, we decided to take two weeks. Um, I wanted to start with a little overview of what we covered last time. Last time, we didn't actually get into the book. We just talked about the book. So last week, for review, we talked about the author of Revelation being the Apostle John. John is the last man standing of those who were commissioned as apostles. He is an old man, and he writes um, at the end of the first century, around 95, 96 AD, probably, Um, after the destruction of Jerusalem. And we talked last week about why that's so important. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, and it is most likely that this book was written after that point. And John had been banished to the island of Patmos. Patmos is an island off of the southwest coast of what's modern-day Turkey. And he writes to um, believers that are in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor, to these seven churches And we will get to those churches here in a few moments. Um, John had been in Ephesus, and he was an elder there. And as an apostle, he led not only in his local church, but in the whole region, he had authority and responsibility. So what's the occasion of this letter? We often talk about why a book was written. Um, For instance, Paul often writes because he hears about something going on in the churches, and he feels compelled to write. Or um, Luke writes his gospel in the book of Acts for, for a man named Theophilus, wanting him to have an orderly account of everything that's taken place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So why does John write Revelation? Well, this is one of those occasions, um, different than some of the other occasions in Scripture, where God literally shows up and says, hey, write down what I'm about to tell you. Um, we've talked before about how inspiration works. And sometimes God, um, God's inspiration is is more indirect, in a sense. Not that he's, it's any less inspired, um, but there are people who, who write for different reasons, and they're, and they're even using other sources, and the Holy Spirit superintends both their words and the sources they're collecting. But sometimes God says, Thus saith the Lord, write this down. This is one of those occasions. Now we see that in, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So why does John write? Because Jesus told him to, very simply. The theme of this book, as we discussed last week, is the lordship of Christ. This book is about Jesus. So if you're reading it and you get lost in the details, step back and remember, this is intended to show us the glory, the lordship, the power, the sovereignty of Christ Jesus, the King of Kings, the Alpha and Omega 
uh, the one who was and is and is to come. It's about him. Christ reveals his glory in the book of Revelation in order to inspire worship. And we find this worship modeled throughout the book. I would love to do a sermon series sometime on the songs of Revelation because there's all these scenes of worship in the heavenly throne room. He writes to inspire obedience. If this is who Jesus is, then we must listen to him and submit to him and obey him and be faithful to him. And that shapes the letters to these churches, as we'll see. And to inspire faithfulness. You know, not walking away, not turning away. Even though there's false teaching, even though there's persecution, believers are to remain faithful to Christ. This book is written to give hope and comfort and joy and courage. The church in every age faces opposition, suffering, persecution. And there's a day coming when it's going to get even worse. And this book is intended to give us courage and joy. We know how it turns out. It gives us hope and comfort. And Revelation is written to give us the final word. This is the last prophecy. This is the completion of God's revelation. This is the last chapter in this book that gives us all we need to know. So that's sort of the theme of Revelation and the purpose of Revelation. So last week, we spent some amount of time discussing how we should approach Revelation. Um, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why there's so many divergent interpretations of this book is because there's several different lenses people use um, as they look at this text. And your assumptions and your interpretive method, that big word we called hermeneutics last week, that's going to determine how you read this book. Um, and there are several of these different approaches. There's the preterist position, which sees all of these things as referring to um, events that happened in the first century, specifically with the destruction of Jerusalem. There's the historicist approach, which sees Revelation as being a summary of all of church history. Uh, so not having to do just with the Jews in Jerusalem, but having to do with the church throughout the ages and sort of matching everything up. There's another approach called the idealist approach, which sees Revelation and the, the imagery and the symbolism there as applying in a spiritual sense to Christians in every age, um, which is admirable, um, but we decided to take the approach called the futurist approach. Not everyone takes this approach, um, and you're not a heretic or a false teacher if you take a different view, but the approach we take here is the futurist approach, and that is, with the exception of the first three chapters, we understand Revelation to be about things that have not yet happened. It's referring to future events. Events that have to do with the return of Christ, the end of the age, and the final judgment and restoration of all things. Now, to be fair, the idealist and the historicist views, and even the preterist view, they also say that some of the things at the end of Revelation are future. But this view would say that starting in chapter 4, all of it is future. So that's sort of our assumption as we approach and again, not everybody takes this view. That's the view that, that I hold and that I'll be teaching from that perspective is the futurist uh, approach, that perspective. So now we get to the content of Revelation, something we didn't get a chance to touch on last week. There's a few different ways we can divide up this book. And one very simple outline um, that's, that's very appealing is taken directly from chapter 1, verse 19. Look in verse 19 of Revelation 1. Jesus says to John, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. You can take this verse and basically break it down into three parts, the past, the present, and the future. The things that you have seen would be the things in the past. The things that are refers to the things in the present, and the things 
that are yet to take place after this would refer to things that are in the future. This little verse can be taken as sort of the the preview or the heading for the rest of the book. Uh, The things that have been would be chapter 1. John sees a vision of Christ and his glory, and, and, is, and we have rehearsed for us the things that Jesus has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. The things that are would refer to these letters to the churches. Right now, these churches are functioning, are existing, and their character, their testimony is at a certain point in time, and John's writing to those things. That would be the things that are. And then the things that are to come would be the future things, referring to the consummation of God's plan for creation and for his people and for his glory. That's chapters 4 to 22, the things that are to take place. So that's one very simple and sort of memorable way to break down the book of Revelation, and it's provided for us in verse 19. There's another way you can break up this book, and that is uh, breaking it up according to the four visions that John sees. And this is more of a literary approach and, a, and based on the content of, of these Uh, of of the book itself. And so if we were to break it up that way, point number one would be the vision of the Son of Man. And that's chapter 1, starting in verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 22. And and the divisions here are marked by John saying, telling us what he saw, what he saw. Revelation 1.10, we already read this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then in verse 12, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw. And then he goes on to describe what he sees there. This is the vision of the Son of Man. And we don't have time today, but there's this amazing description of Jesus um, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1. Jesus in his glory. Not the baby Jesus in the manger. Not the meek and quiet Jesus who turns the other cheek when he's accused and abused. No, this is triumphant. I ripped the gates off of hell and I'm holding the keys, Jesus. The ascended Christ, the magnificent Christ, the Christ who's not veiling his glory anymore, but it's on full display. He has a vision of this Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 9. And then this Jesus, this resurrected, glorified, ascended Christ, tells him what to write to the churches. That's all part of this vision of the Son of Man. Point number two would be the vision of the heavenly throne room. That starts in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, after this, after this interaction with Christ, it says, I looked... And behold, and then he starts to describe for us what he sees. Um, He says, the voice he had heard speaking to him says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So this is pointing to the future events, things that are yet to come. And he says, come up here, come up here to the throne room. So this is the vision of the heavenly throne room. And this is the bulk of the book. Chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 19, verse 10. And this is, again, Jesus revealing to John what is going to take place after this. And we have sort of alternating scenes between the throne room in heaven and what's taking place on the earth. And John's looking back and forth and watching everything that unfolds. So that's the vision of the heavenly throne room. The third division, then, would be the return of Christ, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. In chapter 19, verse 11, he says, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he begins to describe what he sees as Jesus returns to earth. This would be the third vision, the return of Christ and what he sees happening. It's a big shift in what's been going on. What's been going on is seen in heaven, seen on earth, seen in heaven, seen on earth. And then in chapter 19, these scenes collide. And Jesus comes to earth and everything changes. And then the final division would be a vision of A new heaven and a new earth. This is what we refer to as the eternal state. Chapter 21, 
starting in verse 1 through chapter 22 and verse 5. So this is after the return of Christ, after the establishment of his kingdom, after the great white throne judgment, after the resurrection. Everything now is done. And then in Revelation 21.1, he says, Then I saw, so there's a new, new division here, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He describes then what happens in the final installment of God's plan. All things made new. So that's, there's sort of two different outlines I've given you. And the reason I gave them to you is because I like both of them and I didn't want to pick between them. I think they're both useful. Outlines aren't inspired. This is just the way that uh, different scholars and, and people who've studied this, these scriptures have broken it up. And these are, there's literary markers any of us can read through and sort of see these divisions. And so I think it's good for us to sort of turn this thing over and look at it from different angles. Uh, for the purpose of this class, I'm just going to very simply use uh, the simpler outline of the things that have been, the things that are, and the things to come that we find in chapter 1, verse 19. So with our remaining time, let's fly through these 22 chapters of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the things that have been. As we mentioned already, John sees a vision of Christ. And in this section, we find a rehearsal of what Jesus has already done in the past, in his death and resurrection. Look in verses 17 In 18 of chapter 1, when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. And he starts talking about what has happened in the past. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. This is a triumphant declaration from the mouth of Jesus about what he has already accomplished. What do we need to know about Jesus? We need to know who he is and what he has done. And Jesus announces this. Here's who I am, the first and the last. And here's what I have done. I died and rose again. And I've got the keys. I've got the keys. Um, This um, is, is really a glorious picture that we find throughout the book of Revelation, that Jesus is to be worshiped, that he is worthy as the lamb who was slain. John already mentioned this in verses 5 and 6. As he introduces this letter, he wishes them grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He talks about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we always think about Revelation as being about things in the future, which it largely is. But remember, we understand the future in the light of what Jesus has done already in the past. These are the things that have been. And we're never to forget it. In chapters 5, again, we see worship to the Lamb who was slain. Don't ever lose sight of that. Then we get to the things that are, chapters 2 and 3. The ascended, glorified Jesus gives dictation of letters to seven churches. And there's different ways that people have understood these churches. Some people see them as sort of an allegorical description of different churches, of of church history. That the first century, for instance, was this church. And then the, the medieval church was this church. And then the Reformation era is this church. And then the modern church is this church. I don't think that's the best way to read it. Um, I think these are just literal churches in the first century. And as we observe what their issues were, we can learn from all of them. Just the same way Paul writes to Ephesus or Galatia or you know, John writes his epistles or First Peter and First and Second Peter writes his epistles. These are written to real churches in real places that had real issues. And we are to be instructed by them and learn 
from them. It's interesting, in a, from a literary perspective, there's a similarity in the structure of all these letters. We don't have time to unpack all of them, but each one of them starts with an address. He says, to the angel at the church in you know, Laodicea, Smyrna, Philadelphia, and you say, who is the angel of the church? Um, there's different ways to understand this. I think the best way to understand it is to realize that the word angel, the Greek word angelos, simply means messenger. So this is likely written to the pastor, to the pastor at the church, to the messenger of the church, the one who's responsible to communicate the truth of God to the people. Um, I am no angel, um, but I am a messenger. So I don't know what you're going to make of that, except I think that John is just writing letters to the pastors and saying, make sure you get this out to your people. So to the angel or the messenger at the church, write. All of the letters start this way. And then it, it follows with a description of the sender. There's always a reference to Christ with the exception of the church in Laodicea. Um, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, that's where John's from, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a description of Jesus and his glory, um, his position in heaven as ruler, um, supreme over all. So we have a description of the sender, Jesus Christ. All of the letters, except the one to Laodicea, have some sort of description or reference to Christ. And then following that comes a commendation. Following this address and the note about the sender comes a commendation. I know that you guys are doing a good job for the most part. Here's some good things about you. Um, you know, people always talk about, hey, if you're going to confront somebody, it's always good to slip some affirmation in there somewhere. John does this. Well, rather, Jesus does this. Um, I know your good works. I know you're faithful to the truth. I know you've been standing fast. So there's always some sort of commendation, except Laodicea. No commendation for them. Things were getting bad there. Um, and also um, uh, Sardis. Um, rather than giving commendation uh, to those churches, he actually gives them a negative. Like, listen, he just, he just starts right off with their problems. Here's what you're doing wrong. Um, following this commendation comes a complaint. I have this against you. And he expresses his concern. Here's the issue. Here's something you need to correct. Here's a problem that you have going on. You've lost your first love or you're tolerating false teaching or something like that. Um, there is no complaint with Smyrna or Philadelphia, um, which is a good thing. These churches are doing a good job, so he just writes to affirm them and to encourage them to keep it up and to hold fast. Um, following the complaint typically comes some sort of charge or imperative, a command from Christ. Here's what you need to do. Here's, what you, here's how you need to respond. You know, endure or deal with false teaching um, or restore your love, one of those things. And then that is followed by a warning, uh, a warning of persecution that's coming or even God's judgment to them. Finally, um, those messages end with a promise. Uh, if you conquer, if you persevere, if you overcome, here's the blessing that's in store for you. So there's sort of a similar structure with all seven of these letters. We can briefly summarize the message of each of these letters. To Ephesus, he's basically saying, you guys are strong in the truth, but you're weak in love. That's his message to the church in Ephesus. Strong in truth, but weak in love. Your doctrine is great, but your hearts are cold. That needs to change. To Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death. They're living in an age of persecution. And he says, don't give up. Be faithful unto death. To Pergamum, his, the core of his message is, you guys are holding firm, but you're beginning to compromise. There's a warning there to them, beginning to compromise. In Thyatira, he says, you're doing many good works, but you're tolerating a false faith. False teaching is in your midst. And he writes to them that they need to correct that. 
Sardis is in a bad place. They are at the point of spiritual death. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, records their, the letter to them. He says in verse 1, this is a sobering assessment. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's a pretty heavy diagnosis from Jesus. You have the reputation of being alive. You have great church programs. You have a lot of people there on Sunday. You know, you have 5,000 people watching via live stream. Um, You're involved in all of this social work. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. There's a warning here for all churches. How we evaluate the health of a church may look different than how the world would evaluate the health of a church. To Philadelphia, he says, I know you're weak, you're not very strong, but you've kept my word, you're keeping the word. There's a commendation for them. And to Laodicea, perhaps the most famous of these churches, he tells them that they are nauseatingly lukewarm. And sometimes people teach this or preach this and they say, it'd be better if you didn't believe in Jesus at all. If you Just be cold if you're not going to be hot. But that's actually not the point here. Laodicea had all these different springs and some were hot, hot springs, which is very useful. And some were ice cold, which is also useful. Um, ice cold water is good for drinking and good for uh, other things. While boiling hot water is good for cleaning things and for taking a soak when your muscles are sore. Lukewarm water is just stagnant and kind of gross. And so Jesus isn't saying, I would rather you didn't believe at all than be lukewarm. No, he's saying, I wish that you were good for something. I wish that you were hot or cold. I wish you were useful in some way, but you're not. You are nauseating to me, and I'm going to spew you, vomit you out of my mouth. Um, So that's probably one of the most famous but most misunderstood uh, letters to the churches. So those are the seven letters. And again, that could be a whole sermon series itself. Maybe we'll do that someday. But those are the things that are. That's the second section of the book. And then chapters 4 through 22 is the things that are to come, the things that are to come. And basically, chapters 4 through 18 of the book of Revelation is all about the coming judgment. If you're studying Revelation, when you hit chapter 4 and you read chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, all the way through 18, what you're reading about is the wrath that is to come. This is future judgment. It starts with a vision of the heavenly throne room in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, John sees this scroll. This scroll catches his attention. This scroll has seven seals on it, and no one is worthy to open the scroll. People talk about, what is this scroll? What does it represent? It may be sort of the title deed to the earth. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's really the owner? Who has the the deed, the right, to everything that is created? And only Jesus can step forward, unsurprisingly, as the king of kings and is deemed worthy to open this scroll. And as he starts to open this scroll, to exercise his rights as judge and owner of all the earth, there is a successive unfolding of judgment. Something significant takes place as each one of these seals is broken. These seals would have been like, um, they would have globbed a bunch of melted wax on a parchment and then stamped it with um, the ring of a ruler. And that would have been the seal. Um, So you could tell if it had been opened or not. You could tell if it had been tampered with. And the one who could break it and open it was the one who had the authority of the seal that was on it. So Jesus is the one who's the king. Jesus is the one who can open the scroll. And what follows with each successive breaking of these seals is unfolding judgments of this righteous king over the wicked earth that has rebelled against him. And these seven seals are followed, as you're reading through the book, 
by seven trumpets. And as the seven trumpets are blown, you see these unfolding judgments. And the seven trumpets are followed by seven bowls. And each one of these groups of seven, with each successive opening or blowing or pouring out, there are increasingly severe judgments. And this, all of it together, refers to the day of the Lord that is spoken of so often in the Old Testament. This is the judgment that is to come. It is the time of great tribulation that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 24. And this tribulation, this judgment, is cosmic in its scope. It encompasses the entire human race, the entire earth. And it is unlike anything that's ever happened in history insofar as its nature and its severity. It's nothing like anything we've ever seen. Unlike any natural catastrophe, unlike any war, unlike any persecution, unlike any holocaust this world has ever known, it's bigger than that. Um, So there is a question as to how these seals and trumpets and bowls relate to each other. The question is, are they parallel? Is this like three different tellings of the same story? We talked about recapitulation last week. Um, Some people would suggest that. Or are these consecutive? Is it literally 21, you know, different things going on here? I think it's not quite either. I think the best way to understand these three groups of seven is that they are telescopic. And what I mean by that is that the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is the, seventh, is the seven bowls. So what you get is, um, and I think I have a, a diagram up here. This is sort of clunky, but it shows you what, what I mean. That the seventh seal opens up. And encompassed within this seven seal is the seven trumpets. And as the seventh trumpet is, is blown, encompassed within um, the judgment of that seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. So it's sort of like those, those, those nesting egg dolls, you know, those Russian dolls. It's sort of like that. You crack open one and there's more inside. So I think that, that'll help you as you're reading through to sort of keep in mind the structure here. And part of the reason we think that is because of the, the diagram. You go to the next slide. Uh, the way this works, if you look at the third point up here, the pattern is one, two, three, four, five, six, and then there's sort of a parenthesis. There's like a little rabbit trail, a breakaway where you have something happening, and then you jump back to the seventh, and that opens up a new set. And, and so that's, that sort of tips us off, that something significant is going on here with the seventh of each of these things. We don't have time to get into that any more deeply. But just be aware of that. As you're reading through, you're going to hit the sixth, and then there's going to be this excursus. Um, and that's why some people think that these are all, uh, the reason some people think that they're all parallel, they'll try to match up all the, the three groups of seven and say these judgments somehow all fit together, and they'll try to take those three different um, excurses and sort of break them up and fit them together, but they appear to be different. So that's why I don't think they're all the same thing. I think that there's a telescopic unfolding nature to this. And again, this is sort of complex in a literary sense, theological sense, and so that's why this can be a challenge to interpret. But I'm hoping to give you some tools without going in. You may notice I'm not talking about much of the symbolism or the imagery. I'm just trying to help you understand the structure of the book so that you can get into those details. Um, So that's a little bit about these seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, and that takes place Uh, the bulk of it, chapters 4 through 18. And all throughout this time of tribulation, what you'll notice is that the church is conspicuously absent. You might say, where is the church during this time? Well, we're not going to talk about the rapture this morning because Revelation doesn't talk about the rapture. Um, I do believe in a rapture, but we get that from other texts, not from Revelation. Um, So Revelation doesn't necessarily prove um, a rapture. 
um, because it's an argument from silence. The church doesn't appear to be anywhere. But if we interpret other texts to indicate that the church is not going to experience this outpouring of wrath, then it would make sense to us that we're not seeing the church at any point during this time. If you are going to find the church in Revelation, I think you find it in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Um, this, is toward, this is at the end of the tribulation. You can look there real quick. Chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 1, he says, After this, after all of this incredible judgment, the destruction of Babylon, the great city, uh, and all of these things, you know, the system of the world and its rebellion against God, it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. And they're worshiping here. Um, and it's in chapter 6, or, or sorry, verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, crying out, and they're worshiping again. And they're saying in verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then verse 9, the angel says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think that's us. I think that's the church. We are the multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that's been invited to this supper. And the blessing is that we are in heaven rejoicing with Christ, feasting with him, worshiping him, and not experiencing this horrific, cosmic judgment that's being poured out on the earth. Um, Again, not everybody will agree with that. That's how I read it. Um, And we'll talk more about that. In our next Sunday School um, series, we're going to be dealing with doctrine, systematic theology, and when we get to eschatology, we'll talk a lot more about your questions about how all this fits together. And then we come to um, the last section, the things uh, to come. We find the return of Christ in the millennial kingdom. This is chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. At the end of this great tribulation, John sees a spectacular sight, and that is King Jesus returning to earth. He comes in a white horse in great glory with his saints to establish his kingdom. And he accomplishes several things following a great battle as the world rises up against him. He defeats them and he destroys the beast. That's this Antichrist figure. He binds Satan and throws him into a pit. We see that in chapter 20. This angel uh, seizes the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, binds him for a thousand years, throws him into this pit, shuts it, and seals it over him so that he cannot deceive the nations he does this for a thousand years, but there's an ominous little line here. After this, he must be released for a little while. So Jesus established this, this kingdom, reigns for a thousand years. Um, and he does this with his resurrected saints. It says in verse 4, they come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Um, and then when this thousand years is ended, in verse 7, something significant happens. Satan is released, and there is another great battle. And you might say, why? Why would God let Satan out? Why would he let him out to deceive the nations again and rise up? Well, if you remember last week, we talked about how to understand Revelation, you have to read Genesis and Daniel and Ezekiel and and these, and these other books in the Old Testament. God's purpose for his creation was to have Adam as his representative, as a human being made in his image, who ruled over creation as God's regent and who exercised dominion over God's earth and cultivated it and brought it to flourishing and fruitfulness. Satan snuck in and ruined the whole thing by defeating the man, tempting Eve, Adam sinned, the human race fell, and all of creation was corrupted. This is like a replay, except now we don't have Adam ruling over the earth. Now we have Jesus, the second Adam. 
And the question is, wow, Jesus is here and this kingdom is amazing and everything is so different and so much better. Is this all just going to get ruined again? Because it feels like we've seen this movie before. Well, this is round two. Satan is released again and he deceives the nations just like he deceived Eve. But this time, Adam doesn't fail. This time, Jesus crushes the serpent like Adam should have done. Adam should have stepped on that snake and he didn't. Jesus will. And so this is, is God saying, listen, you, you sort of messed up my plan, but you didn't mess up my plan because, look, it, it's going to happen. So this is God accomplishing his purpose all the way back from Genesis 1 and 2. And then following the destruction of, of this rebellion and the final destruction of Satan where he is cast into the lake of fire for eternity, um, never to be released. The smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever, it says. Um, and following that, we have the great white throne judgment. The unbelievers, who at this point have not been resurrected, are brought to life and they're sentenced to judgment. And at this point, everything reaches its final state. We see this vision of the new heaven and the new earth. In chapter 21, amazing, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is Eden restored. This is the, this is the redemption of not just individual people, but the redemption of the entire creation. All creation's been longing for that, waiting for that, and it happens. John sees the new Jerusalem coming down, heaven on earth. There's no tears, all things are made new. We see this river of life and the tree of life there in chapter 22. Eden is restored, and we find God dwelling with his people. This is how the story's supposed to end. Verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's what was supposed to happen in Eden. God dwelling with his people as Adam reigned over the earth. Now you have Jesus, the king of kings. You have God himself dwelling with his people. And you have the perfect man, Jesus, reigning over his renewed and restored creation. All because of his death and resurrection. This is the triumphant ending of the story. And we have God dwelling with his people. I love chapter 22, verse 4. We know that things went bad in the garden, but in verse 3 it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in this new creation, in this new Jerusalem. And his servants will worship him, not fall into sin. It says they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. It says in verse 5 that we will reign with him forever and ever. This is the end of the story. That's how it ends. The book closes with an epilogue. We don't have time. We're out of time. But uh, there's a warning not to add anything to this book, a promise that Jesus is coming soon, a prayer that he would come soon, and a blessing given to the readers. And that is how this massive book, this amazing story, ends. And it's exciting. And, and I hope that you will read the book of Revelation. And I hope that you won't be thrown off by some of the details. You won't get lost in the weeds. Keep in mind, what is God doing? What is Jesus doing? What is he like? And how does this give us hope and comfort? And how can I today walk with faith in what is going to happen, Christ's victory in the end, and, and also walk faithfully before him, um, heeding the instructions of this book? It should give us joy it brings blessing when we read and understand. Um, it's amazing to me. I want to say thanks to all of the guys who helped teach through over the last year. We've covered now every book in the Bible. 
one by one. We grouped some of the small ones together and split this into two, but we have covered every book now. So thank you to all of you guys who labored in this endeavor. I hope that for those of you who participated in this class, that it was helpful to you and inspired you to take up scripture and read, and that it helped you, sort of gave you a compass to navigate through some of these books. I know you've got a bunch of questions about this. Um, What about the mark of the beast? Can we know if Jesus is returning? What about the rapture? We'll get to that um, in eschatology. But anyway, that is all we have for this morning. Thanks for coming early this morning, about 15 minutes, and we'll regather again for worship. You are dismissed.